Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. Thank you, Pastor Tim. You're very kind indeed. Now, we are smack right in the middle of, of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And Romans chapter 8 is the heart of what I like to call the gospel according to Paul. Uh, The good news that that God has done something amazing and incredible to to rescue us as we live in this messed up world. Now over the past few weeks, Pastor Tim has shown us how Paul's words remind us that we are God's children. We are. We're adopted with special rights and privileges. In fact, those rights and privileges are are really better than a natural-born child. And it's not a random accident. We are chosen to be God's children, to be a part of his family. And that's amazing. Now, if you were a small child of the king, a small child of the king of the United Kingdom, you would have great privileges and unrivaled access to the king. Most people would never have the opportunity to talk to him face to face, but you're the child of the king. You can just walk into any of the 700 rooms of Buckingham Palace and talk to the king, at least if you can find him. But he's your dad, and you can travel around the world with the king and get VIP treatment wherever you go. But there are also some limitations to being a child of the king, some restraints. Almost everywhere you go, you have security guards with you. And you have paparazzi everywhere you go. Camera flashes every time you take a step. You can't even do anything ordinary. And even though you have great privileges, it may feel like you're suffering for being a child of the king. Now, there are many benefits of being in the family of God, but let's be honest. There are some difficulties that go with being a child of God, at least in this world. And here's the word we've looked at from Romans chapter 8, verse 17, on being God's kids. Now, if you are children, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So since we're part of God's family, we share all that he has. We share in his glory for sure. But there's some things that go with the glory in this tough world we live in. We share sufferings. Now most of us do everything we can to avoid pain. The hard things that we have to endure, we we just don't want to, to have to endure them. But even Jesus was not exempt from suffering in this world. And we are not either. Now the climax of God's plan, both for his people and for creation, is glory or glorification. Glory is one of those religious words that sometimes it's it's hard to get into our head. We, We know that it's something big and it's good and it's about God, but sometimes that's about all we we really understand. But I like to translate glory as God being seen. That's who he really is. You might want to write that down. God being seen is who he really is. And every time I see that in the Bible, I, I, I put that in my own mind. So the final glorification is God being seen in everything. 
in us, in creation, in the whole universe. God fully revealed as he is. Now, Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mercy, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ living in you is God's hope of being seen as he is, as he really is in this world. You are God's hope. Now, I know we tend to think of, well, we hope in God, or we, uh, I know you hope in God, but did you think about the fact that you are God's hope that he will be seen in your life and in the life of, of the church, his followers of believers gathered together? Now, we already have some of his glory, but we also have a lot of non-glory and suffering hurts and hardships that come from living in this messed up world. And you know, I helped mess up this world too, so I can't just blame it on all those people out there or the people who lived before me. So we always live in this, this stage in between glory on one hand and suffering on the other. Last week we discussed the suffering and glory of God's creation and the suffering and glory of God's children. And today we, we add one you might not expect, the suffering and glory of God's Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but when I suffer, when things are hard, I groan. Oh, <laughs> maybe you do too. It's not always with a, with a sound outside, but inside, I groan. Uh, maybe you groan when you get out of bed every day <laughs> or, or when something in your body doesn't just quite work right or when you've had a bad day. But we groan and moan and sigh because life is not what we want it to be. Life is not what it should be as God intended it. But there's also a groaning that moves towards something good doing something tough, getting through a hard project or a demanding week, the sigh, the, 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 the groan of finishing. And there are hard groans and screams of a woman bringing new life into the world that leads to a joyful sigh. And we all have groans of saying no to temptation. Sometimes it's it, it hurts, even though we know it's best. And there are groans of, of rooting out the sins and addictions in your life to move on toward this powerfully changed life. And these are the groans of, I'm not there yet. But also the urging groan of moving forward. We say that we're imperfect, we're sinful people in progress. And the progress keeps us groaning, groaning, wanting more and more. Now Paul tells us that there are at least three groans in that stage in between being born again and being completely in the presence of God. Pastor Tim dealt with the first two last week, but I want to review them for a minute because they're connected to the third one. So the first is the whole creation Groans. The whole creation grows because it's bound in this bondage to decay. You remember the second law of thermodynamics, those of you who paid attention in science, as I didn't always, but um, 
you drop a ball and it drops lower and lower every time. And so our world is running down. Remember when God created things? Well, maybe you weren't there. Uh, but at the end of each day, God reflected and enjoyed what he had created. And he said, it's good. And then he said, it's very good. And many things are still good. But there's also a lot of creation that is also messed up. And it's groaning, it's groaning, it's wanting more uh, for something better. Creation is frustrated, Paul writes, because it's not like it once was. But it's not creation's fault. Creation's frustration is connected to us, people like us. <clears throat> the very first sins of the very first people actually affected the way creation was intended to work. God told Adam that because you sin, you're going to have weeds now, as well as, thorn, as, well as uh, uh, flowers and, and beautiful crops. And creation's groans cause us to groan as well because he says you will have painful toil as you work. Anybody feel a groan coming on about tomorrow's work? Shall we groan together? Wow. So creation's decay affects us all. And that curse continues as we keep cursing the environment that we live in. The earth is groaning because of the sins of our, our first parents as well as the sins that we inflict against creation now. <clears throat> we saw last week how, how the growing weather disasters are groaning at us. Too much rain, too little rain, uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, earthquakes. And those may be at least partially caused by us, but also because the world is just running down. And just like us, creation wants to be redeemed. It wants to be put right. And Paul tells us that creation is pregnant. It's, it's in birth pains to deliver a new heaven and a new earth. And so not only is creation's frustration connected to our frustration, but creation's redemption is connected to our redemption as well. J.B. Phillips translates uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 19. He says, The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. And creation wants to be liberated. It wants to go into this glorious freedom with us. It's all connected together. Now, the second groaner is us. We know a lot about that one. We ourselves groan. We had the first fruits of the Spirit now, but, but we groan despite having the Spirit because even though we're children of God, our, our sinful nature calls us to act like children of the devil. We are now God's children, adopted into his family and made right through Jesus, but we're not yet God's children in the way that we will be one day possessing full inheritance and enjoying perfect bodies and living completely holy and fully in God's presence. So we can't help it. We just groan. And we're craning our necks to see what's around the corner because we want more. So creation groans, we groan, but we in creation are not the only groaners. 
So let's read the passage that's for today and discover who else groans. Let's stand for the reading of God's word because we honor God's word and that's one way of honoring it. And we're going to read Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word that teaches us things we would have no idea about if we just lived in this world without your word. Thank you for the truth of it. And I pray that it would sink in all of our hearts today and that we'd actually practice, we'd actually obey, we'd actually do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. As you sit down, groan at the person next to you, will you? Some of you sound like you're really good at groaning, like you've been practicing somehow. (laughs) Well, who else groans besides creation and us? God. God himself groans. Even God groans? Yeah. God, the Holy Spirit, groans. But his groaning is very different from the other two groanings because he is God, after all. Now, I think you'll all agree that we all have weaknesses, or at least you'll think, well, I know that person next to me has some weaknesses for sure. And those weaknesses cause problems. They cause problems for us, and they cause problems for the people around us. We're limited because of our human condition, and let's not forget our sin. Yet God knows we're weak. And that's why he sent the Holy Spirit as God inside us. If you've turned your life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, God himself, the Spirit, is actually living inside you. Now let's be clear, we are not God. We don't become part of God one day when we get better and better. We don't become little gods. But God has chosen to live in us, to give us some help. And that's amazing. I want to mention three points, Paul's three points, about the Spirit's groaning. The first one is simple. He says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And we need the Spirit's help whether we realize it or not. Because we're in this in-between stage, between the already and the not yet. We're like a pregnant lady. There's a baby inside kicking and and moving around. The baby is alive and real. He or she exists already, but he or she is not yet fully in this world. And so the mother waits, the husband waits, the baby waits until the time is right. At least most of the time they wait. And it's the same with our life with God. We've already been born again. We've already started life all over when we allowed Jesus to be Lord of our lives, but we've still got things that need to be renewed, renewed daily. We're not there yet. We've already been adopted into God's family, but we haven't yet 
received our full inheritance. We already live in the kingdom of God under the reign of King Jesus, but we're not yet fully what we will be in the full kingdom of God. So we live in this already, but not yet experience. And we need that ho- the Holy Spirit to fill in the gap between the already and the not yet, to lift us up, to encourage us, to guide us, to move us forward in the midst of this already, not yet. Good, but messed up world we live in. When you don't know what to do, the Holy Spirit is there to give you the guidance you need. When you're tempted, the Holy Spirit is there to to give you the strength to resist, to help you find a way out, and to give you courage to do what you know that God is calling you to do. When you don't know what the truth is, the Holy Spirit has inspired the Scriptures with God's Word. Now, the Holy Spirit helps, helps us then in all kinds of weaknesses. But here Paul is talking specifically about our weakness in prayer. Did you notice what he said? We don't even know what to pray for. (laughs) Now look, Paul, I have a prayer list to remind me what to pray for. And every week the church sends out a list of prayer requests. Maybe you have a prayer list or some helpful way to pray. So maybe we do know how to pray. Why would Paul say we don't know what we ought to pray for? Doesn't Paul have a prayer list? Just for a minute, think about a serious uh, health issue of someone that you know, or maybe yourself. We all want to pray for their healing. Isn't that what God wants? Or think about a really hard boss at life. I mean, wouldn't God want you to get a new job so you could get out of that bad situation? Or what about a a tough relationship that you have with somebody or or even at home? Doesn't God just want that person to, to somehow go away? But the truth is we often don't know what God is doing in these tough situations. God didn't cause that serious illness, but does he want us to pray for healing? Or should we ask for the strength to endure this time with grace and love? You've got that demanding, insensitive boss at work, but does God want to give you a a new job as a way out? Or does he want to teach you something about your own character? Or teach you patience? Or allow you to turn this relationship into something good? Or at least something better? You have this tough relationship at home. Is God using that situation to clear up some sin in your life? Or is God giving you the opportunity to help change someone else's life? Maybe we don't know what to pray for sometimes. Now, Paul had a close relationship with God. He he knew the will of God in many situations. He knew what to pray. We we see some of his God-inspired prayers in some of the letters that he wrote. But he seemed to learn more about prayer in his own experience of suffering, that other side of glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, many of you will remember this, he says, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Now this suffering wasn't from God, 
It was from Satan. It was a messenger of Satan. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that's why. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, and in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Now Paul prayed. He even pleaded for, for healing, but he didn't receive it. And you may think, well, look, I've prayed a whole lot more for healing than three times in my life. You gave up too easily, Paul. You must have forgotten Jesus' parable about praying persistently. Keep on praying, Paul. Now, we don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Some physical problem, perhaps. Maybe bad eyesight. But the Lord taught Paul an important truth in his suffering. The messenger of Satan was used to teach by God to teach him humility. Because like some of us, perhaps... Paul knew that he could have easily been arrogant. Paul knew that um, God's grace was enough. He didn't have to be healed to follow Jesus. He learned that God's power is beyond healing. It's beyond everything going well. And he learned a gigantic paradox there, which he passed on to us later followers of Jesus. He said, for when I'm weak, that's actually... When I'm strong. And when he had other hardships in his life, and you'll remember he had a lot of hardships, he knew that God was with him. And even in his weakness, he was strong in Christ. Last week, I heard a man speak about his brother who was suffering terribly from, from terminal cancer. And this, this man said, uh, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy but I also wouldn't trade my situation for anything in the world because I've grown so much closer to God, I've grown so much closer to my family. This man had gained so much even in the process of losing his life. And perhaps in Paul's thorn of the flesh suffering, he learned that he didn't even know what to pray for sometimes. But I think it's good that Paul learned after three times praying for it. It takes me a lot longer, I don't know about you, to learn what to pray for. But Paul was in the middle, like us, of the already, but the not yet. Now, I don't know if you've experienced not knowing what to pray for. I mean, how do you pray for Israel and Gaza now? Peace, yeah, but what else? What if you were a Messianic Christian hostage in Gaza now? If it was me, I'd be praying for my release, for sure. But how do you pray for your captors and that God will use you in this situation? How would you pray if you were a Palestinian believer trying to escape from bombs and trying to protect your children and not knowing where your next meal was, was coming from? How would you pray? How, how do you pray for Ukraine now? How do you pray for our polarized country now? How do you pray for your friend with cancer? How do you pray for that belligerent person at work that you know will never change? 
there are plenty of times I don't know what to pray for. My morning prayers, my meal prayers, my spontaneous prayers in the middle of the day, sometimes it just seems like something is missing. And when big issues come up, when I'm overwhelmed, when, when I don't know what to do, I need help even in talking to God about the issue. And Paul tells us there is help. We're not alone in prayer. And the help comes from the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit joins with us in, in bearing our burden, being in, the, in between suffering and glory, living in the already but not yet, living in this world with its trouble, yet, yet having the help of the Holy Spirit. At the end of verse 26, he says, the Spirit himself intercedes and groans with words that words cannot express. The Spirit intercedes without words, wordless groans on our behalf. We don't need to be upset with ourselves in the middle of our prayer with our inability to express it in words. We don't have to, to give up praying because the words just don't pour out like some people it seems to do. We can just relax and allow God's Spirit to communicate those wordless prayers. The Spirit doesn't even use language. It's, it's non-language. He just wordlessly groans with us in prayer. And somehow, His groans communi communicate with the Father. And He intercedes between us and the Father. So God's Spirit groans deeply with us and also within us. These wordless groans... They, they connect with our own groans for redemption because the Holy Spirit wants your redemption. He wants to move you there as quickly as possible. He wants you to be glorified for God to be seen as he really is. <clears throat> now you can talk to God without the Spirit. A lot of people do. You may even get answers without the Spirit. I suppose some do. An atheist once told me that he was in a tough situation, so he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And he told me later, God answered that prayer. But he still didn't believe in God. I don't get that. But fully Christian prayer is impossible without the Holy Spirit. Since we often don't know what to pray, we cry, help me, Holy Spirit. We say, Holy Spirit, take my prayer, these words I've said, and, and move them beyond what I know. Move them to what God's will really is, beyond what I've said. So the Spirit is our prayer partner. <clears throat> he continues where we leave off. He groans to the Father about, about things we don't even understand, and he empowers our prayer to go beyond our words and deal with issues we don't even understand. We don't even have the foggiest idea of what it's all about. <clears throat> so we pray to the Father through Jesus and by the Spirit. But through Jesus doesn't just mean tacking on in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of your prayer. It's talking to our Father, realizing that we only have access to the Father through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's always realizing that our relationship to God is because of Jesus, 
and the intercession of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but communication with God, connection with God, is not just a one-way street. Uh, people usually define prayer as just talking to God. And that's a nice, simple explanation, and that's true. But that's not all, folks. Listening is part of the communication, too. And if we're always talking, if we're never listening, we will not have effective conversation with God. Now, you could give God your, worship, your, your wish list, for sure. He will hear your request. But it won't be real communication with God if we don't listen to the Holy Spirit on even what to talk about to God. And sometimes I just wonder if the Holy Spirit is raising his hand and saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here to help you. And then maybe sighing, maybe one of his groans. If they would just stop talking, I could give them some real guidance and some real answers. Martin Luther, you'll know, was that great reformer, and he averaged two hours a day in prayer. And he counseled others, the fewer the words, the better, the prayer. Interesting. So open yourselves to allow God's Spirit to prompt you in prayer. In your silence, are you silent? In your listening, are you listening? Does someone come to mind? Pray for that person. Is God calling you to do something for that person? Send them a text. Give them a call. Uh, <clears throat> actually, send them a card with a real handwriting and a real stamp. Visit that person. Help that person with a task. And if you're listening, allow the Holy Spirit in your listening to remind you what the truth is. He may clarify a situation for you and make it absolutely crystal clear. And since our praying is limited by our weakness, that means that except on rare occasions, our requests are qualified by if it's your will. If it's your will. Now, honestly, I would rather not qualify my prayers ever. But I want the will of God more than I want my will. And I suspect you do too. And that's why I need God's Spirit to help me in prayer. Now, that's not saying that we don't make our requests known to God. Our, our Father always wants us to make our requests known. <clears throat> we will almost always want a sick person to be healed. So pray for healing, yes. Pray fervently, pray persistently. But we always make our requests dependent on God's will, just as Jesus did in Gethsemane. Yet not as I will, but as your will be done. And of course, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to understand the will of God. You know, well, just leave it all to the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit wants you to know God, God's will, and he will let you know God's will, and we will, we will often know it. But we can't presume to identify our own will with God's will. And if Jesus didn't do that, we don't either. And though it's hard to believe sometimes, God knows better than you do. And for sure, he knows better than I do. So we rely on God's Spirit who overcomes our weaknesses and stands in the gap without words. 
Verse 27 reminds us of our third point here. The Spirit knows God's will for your life. The Spirit knows God's will for your life. Verse 27 says, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, for that is, for the believers, in accordance with God's will. The Spirit knows you, and he knows God's will. Is there a better combination than that? I suspect that all of us long for somebody to know us completely, to really understand us, to to know what's going on inside us. But I have to be honest, sometimes I don't know what's going on inside me. I, I don't know what I think. I don't know what I feel. And I certainly can't express it in words. But someone knows me fully. The Holy Spirit lives inside me. He, he rides shotgun in my brain. He rides sidecar in my heart. He knows my feelings, whether they're up or down or all around. You know, he knows my thoughts. He knows where I'm strong. He knows where I'm weak. No one else knows me like that. Not my wife that I've been married to for 35 years. Not my closest friends. Not my son. Not my pastor. Not my doctor. But it's God who searches our hearts. King David made that clear in Psalm 139. He said, you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit. You know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And then David, having already declared that God's done a full search of him, he asked for more uh, inspection. At the end of this same psalm, it says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Do you have the courage to pray that prayer? To ask God to search you? To ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what God has God has found. It's God the Father who searches our hearts. And in that mysterious connection of the Trinity, our Father passes on that knowledge about you and the knowledge of his will for you to the Spirit. And then the Spirit can direct you and move you to be that person that God wants you to be. I said I'd give you three points, but I want to add a fourth point, just for a good measure. It's from John Vincent Taylor. He writes a book And he he calls the Spirit the go-between God. The go-between God. And I like that. Because the Spirit lives in me and reveals God's will to me. And if I'm listening, then he won't steer me wrong. He knows the old me. He knows the new me that God is reforming and and that I will become. He knows the process that will make me more like Jesus. And he intercedes between the Father and me. Maybe he appeals to the Father to to push me a little further or to give me a little more help or a little more time. But the Spirit is the perfect mediator. He's the one who goes between you and God the Father. Now the Spirit, since the Spirit knows God's will for your life, wouldn't it be wise to listen to him? 
Wouldn't it be wise to let him guide your conversation with the Father? Wouldn't it be wise to, to let him use some wordless groans on your behalf? And when our words are so imperfect, we can be sure that the Spirit's groaning perfectly matches God's will. Now the truth is, you will groan in this world if you're yearning for the full life of God. But don't groan alone. Groan with the Spirit. Groan with creation. And then your groaning won't be wasted. Because a groan is a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> and one, one day you will see what the next verse in Romans tells us. And we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him. But that's another chapter in how your story meets God's story that we'll explore next week.